Welcome back to the Raider Report podcast, everybody. My name is Nick Benvenuto. I'm the news editor for the Wright State Guardian, joined today by Claire O'Toole, social media assistant. Hello. And Holly Hewlett, social media assistant as well. Hi. And on today's episode, we are joined by our special guest, Deborah Monk, who is Wright State Title IX coordinator and equity investigator. Deborah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. Holly and Claire, I'm so glad to be here with you guys. You guys did an excellent job last week when I was out. Um, For those of you guys who don't know, I was been battling the coronavirus over the past week and a half, two weeks. So I'm slowly starting to get back to my normal self and have my voice back and not coughing every you know two seconds. Um, So I'm glad to be back here with you guys um, on our you know second half of this season. We started this this season of podcast episodes last semester, and we're still rolling in. So we're on episode 17 now. Um, it's crazy that we've come this far and we've had, you know, this many episodes, but I'm, I'm really glad to be back and continuing this season with you guys and be pushing for more and more guests to come on and join us. Um, but getting started today, uh, Deborah, I just wanted to go ahead and get um, a little bit more background information on you, get to learn about you and some of the things that you've done in your professional career. Um, I know that you had an extensive work experience at the University of Dayton. Um, So if you want to go ahead and talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, some of the things that you've done in your post-college life and maybe the the degree that you studied when you were in college and some of the things that you were able to accomplish at the University of Dayton. Sure. I uh, spent 25 years at the University of Dayton as well as got my master's degree there. So I have uh, sort of grown up post-college here in the Dayton area, but I am from Chesapeake, Virginia. So occasionally folks who talk with me will hear a little bit of that Southern come out, particularly (laughs) in my use of the word (laughs) y'all. I have been in student affairs since I started college. I was a resident assistant and also served as a as a what they called a programming coordinator mm-hmm. for students, um, and through graduate school served in residence life. That's when I first learned about Title IX. So I've been mm-hmm. working in and around Title IX and Title IX issues since graduate school, and uh, found myself uh, looking for a new position and a new adventure. And Wright State's posting caught my eye. One of the things I like about the position is that it also comes with that equity investigator piece, which I have also extensive experience in. So putting the two together really worked out for me. Um, In terms of my college career, I have both of my degrees, my undergrad and my master's degree in religion. I found a I don't know how, I don't know if this happened to you all or not, but I have found a difficult time picking a major. I would take a class, enjoy it, change my major to that. I did that three times until I sat myself in a religion class and found that I actually enjoyed the learning a little bit differently than I did in other classes. So um, both of my degrees are in religion 
and I have just about half of a master's completed in student affairs. I probably mm -hmm. should finish that, but at some age, you're just like, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my undergraduate career. I went to University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, I was a very active student in all sorts of activities. I was an Alpha Delta Pi, which I don't think Wright State has. So I was mm -hmm. Greek and um, spent some time with student government, all sorts of good fun activities. Um, and that's where I came from. Nice, nice. What was it about the religion classes that you were taking that really, um, you know, got you engaged and stuff like that? I don't think I've ever met anybody that has, um, you know, majored in religion or anything like that. I've never spoke with anybody that has um, actually studied religion like that. So can you tell me a little bit about it and what, what got you engaged? Sure. I grew up Christian. And um, while my family was not extremely religious, certainly um, there was an underlying foundation that I was taught. And that's all I really knew about religion was what I was taught from my family. When I sat in a world religions class and began to learn more about Islam and um, Buddhism and all, all different sorts of faiths, I really got entranced by people living their lives based on um, these traditions, folks who took their steps each day in faith um, without question of it. It really just fascinated me. And I'll be honest, at the beginning, in sort of a critical way, like, why would anyone do that? And why do they believe this? That kind of thing. And then as I got deeper into it and realized just how entrenched society is in faith in general, mm -hmm. um, it really just kind of tweaked my interest. So when I went to get my master's degree, I said, well, what do I love doing? And that's how I found my master's program and ended up at the University of Dayton. That's odd. That's really cool. It's odd, but, but yeah, it, it, I'm not surprised that you don't know a lot of people with that degree. Usually people who get a religion degree end up being a minister of some kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't my path. You were the uh, associate dean of students, uh, presumably at UB, and you were also the director of community standards for 18 years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I um, came out of residence life with a pretty good skill set in student conduct, and I enjoyed the work, which is odd among student affairs folks. People don't usually like to do discipline, so to speak. Yeah. But I really liked watching students' light bulbs come on around how, what are your values and how do your behaviors match those values, which kind of connects back to my degrees. Um, so I went into student conduct in 2004, um, became the assistant dean of students in student conduct, and I built UD's system. When I first got there, it had been run by um, a very, very wonderful professional named Mary Sue, who'd been there for 30 years. And while the program was modern, when she created it, it had sort of become outdated. So mm -hmm. I had to go back to the drawing board, so to speak, and ask myself, what is fundamental fairness? And how mm -hmm. do we make sure students know the rules, but also um, hold each other accountable rather than it being sort of the long arm of the law kind of system, which I think is what all student conduct offices want. I know that Christopher Hogan here at Wright State is um, all about the education piece and not so much about punishment, which is nice. Um, Beyond that, I, as an assistant dean, part of my role was to work, work, 
directly with the dean of students. Um, and the dean of students office addresses a lot of crisis and conflict that doesn't have anything to do with student conduct, but is students in distress or students who are experiencing um, some sort of moment where they are becoming violent either against themselves or others. And I began to be a case manager for the dean. That role really took me into my associate dean position when I um, sort of transitioned out of student conduct. I still supervised it, but I was the crisis coordinator. I managed all of the on-call business. I managed all of the cases of folks who attempted to take their own lives, as well as those threat assessment issues that you have to face in the modern world around, is this person a danger to others? Um, mm -hmm. It was very, very stressful work. And sure. really, really, yeah, it, it, it's, it turned me to a point where I said, do I want to be in student affairs anymore? Um, mm -hmm. Which was a difficult thing. And so I spent some soul searching here this past year around what do I like doing? How do I find that passion again? And uh, Title IX is where a lot of my passion is. So I said, let me see what's out there. I applied both at Wright State and there was a position at another local institution. And uh, thankfully, Wright State scooped me up. Well, I know that um, Title IX, as we'll talk about soon here, has a lot to do with gender discrimination and equality. But what other community standards did you have to set? You mentioned a lot of... Uh, students in crisis, did you deal with any roommate problems or was that was that too small of a problem for you? It wasn't too small of a problem, but usually I didn't get involved in roommate problems until one roommate threatened another. Oh. So um, it's really dealing in safety concerns. And then in the student conduct side, I, of course, did all of what we would call the minor conduct, all the noise violations and um first defense alcohol stuff all the way up to the big stuff from, you know, dealing drugs to kidnapping, um, which you wouldn't think you'd have to manage in a college environment, but unfortunately sometimes you do. I can see why that would take a toll on your mental health. Yeah, it was, it's a stressful situation knowing what you know and not always being able to do anything about it. I would imagine that police officers um, lose a lot of sleep when they encounter someone that they believe to be dangerous but don't have the information to back up their claim. It, uh, mm -hmm. it can cause a lot of distress. It reminds me a lot of um, what social workers do as well. We had, mm -hmm. we had a guest on, um, I can't remember what episode it was. It was early on in the season, um, and her name is Debbie Flynn, and she's a caseworker case slash social worker, has been for like 20, 25 years. Um, and some of the things that you're expressing, you know, you know, going home and not knowing what's going to happen with this person that, you know, that you've been reading about or not knowing if this person is going to hurt somebody or themselves. It's a very stressful um, work environment. But at the same time, um, the work that you were doing and the work that those people do is, you know, so very important to everybody in the community. So um, I think that's really good work that you were able to do there. Yeah, social work is actually one of the career choices I was pondering as I was trying to figure out who I am and what I want to be. It is very similar, and I decided it was too similar. So I, I left it for uh, staying within Title IX. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so now that we know a little bit more about what Title IX is and what it uh, consists of, uh, what would the process be of somebody making a report to you 
Um, can you talk to us a little bit about like how they would go about making that re Title IX report? Sure. Let me back up a little bit, though, and make sure that I sort of say Title IX is a law that governs universities, not students and employees. So I think sometimes that gets confused. A student cannot violate Title IX. Um, a student can uh, be sexually harassed or discriminated against, which would put the university at fault for create, not being an environment that is um, working to end that. So my job is to make sure the university is compliant such that when someone does report sexual harassment or discrimination, that a proper investigation happens and that people who are, should be held accountable are held accountable. That's how we stay compliant. So the university's sex and gender-based harassment and discrimination policy is primarily what I manage, but I also, as a part of Title IX, have to manage um, Title IX in athletics, which is equality um, in the sports program, um, Title IX in admissions, making sure that we are running a fundamentally fair admissions process with regards to sex and gender. So that's what it is. In terms of reporting it, it gosh, we have got every which way and possible to report it. Everything from uh, emailing me to walking up to just about any staff member who has the authority to take action and say, hey, something's happened to me. Can you help me file a report? For example, um, an academic advisor, a resident assistant, um, a staff member over in community standards or in student life, all of those folks are reporters. So a student or a faculty staff member can walk up to any of those folks and say, I'd like to file a report. And in doing so, if they give any details about what happened, they in essence have filed the report. Um, what happens next is I get notified and then I reach out to the reporting party and say, hey, let's talk about first, what do you need? How can I help you? Um, do you need some accommodations? Do you share a parking lot with this particular person? Are you in a class with this person? Is this person your supervisor? What immediate action can I take to make the behavior stop while we look into this? So that reporting is the easy part. You can email me, which is, you know, Deborah.monk at right, but also at the bottom of every single university webpage, um, there's four tabs at the very bottom of every page. One of them says Title IX. If you click that, um, one of the things you can do is report on that page through, I think it's called Ethics Point. Um, and so you can report that way. And then prior to my arrival at Wright State, there was an office called the Office of Equity and Inclusion. Um, that office is currently being restructured, but because it Title IX used to report there. There's also an email address, um, oei at right.edu, that a student can report to. Or they can just walk in my office. I'm over in University Hall. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Oh, and then there's calling the police. You can call the police, too, if it's illegal, yeah. right? Well, I guess you could call them either way. but That kind of goes into the question that I wanted to ask you. I know that there was a restructure um, recently done with the Wright State Police Force. Um, turning into a public safety department. Um, so my question was, if somebody does come to you, let's say um, a student wants to make a report um, and 
you know, the police do have to get involved. What what police department do you guys work with in your investigations? Are you are you working with Wright State Police? Or are you working with Fairborn Police? And how how does that get um, how does that get investigated? Well, it kind of depends. So if a person goes to the police department to file a report, whether that be Fairborn or Wright State, whichever department they file with would be the department I'd be working with in that particular case. The difference is Wright State's public safety office and I have an ongoing relationship where I know they're going to report it to me every single time, just as I report it to them every single time. Mm-hmm. So that happens when it comes to Fairborn. We the right the university has an excellent relationship with Fairborn police. Absolutely, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every officer, every moment, is going to make it to us because they have other business at hand. So I might not hear about it unless the person also comes to the university and says, "Hey, I found this report. Here's what's happening." I think they switched to public safety like my first week. Yeah, that that just recently happened. I've been in talks with um, some of the officers as well. So, yeah, that was a very recent switch that just happened. Also, I think it's important to note that while I report every sexual assault to public safety, I do not share the details that the complainant doesn't want me to in case they don't want to file a police report. So I call them and I tell them what I need to tell them for reporting purposes for Cleary, unless the student wants um, to file a police report, in which case I would help them do so. Well, Deborah, I've been reading uh, about what you did at UB. It sounds like you've had an extensive history there and did a lot of great things. I know that you said that the jobs you had there were difficult on your mental health, but how did this all prepare you for what you're doing now at Wright State? Well, I've been, like I said, I've been working with Title IX since my career began. Before 2011, so in 2011, the Department of Education sent out what's called a Dear Colleague letter to all universities and institutions of education and said, hey, don't forget about Title IX. We don't think you've been doing it right. Here's how you better do it. So prior to that, um, myself, along with a colleague of mine, uh, who's now the dean there, Dean Schramm, we managed all the sexual assault cases and sexual harassment cases among students. So I did not, at that point, manage anything with faculty and staff. Um, so that happened in 2011. This letter came out, and one of the things the letter said is that every institution should work to have one person called a Title IX coordinator Um, and that's when I became a Title IX deputy. So most institutions have one coordinator and several deputies. We hired a brand new position then, as as did Wright State, um, around 2011-ish. We, both institutions said, hey, who's going to be the coordinator? And then those who had been working in it prior to that came on as deputies. The deputy role is really similar to a coordinator role, except the buck doesn't stop there, so to speak. Um, They can, you know, intake people and um, do investigations and do all of the same stuff. We have several um, deputies on campus at Wright State, and um, that's really helpful to me, knowing that I've got that many folks who have the skill set to help me out. So um, at UD... Around 2011, as I said, I became the deputy, 
And that's when I became more of the student conduct portion of it. You know, any case that goes to investigation with students would go to the adjudication of the student conduct process if there was enough evidence to suggest that the policy was violated. Um, and since I was in that role, that community standards role for a number of years, I'm the one that actually managed the hearings. So wow. folks would come in and um, often have their attorneys with them and we would sort through all of the information. That was an interesting piece of work. I do oh not gosh. envy Chris. Yeah, you got two people in a room, one of which who has likely been victimized by the other, um, and they get to ask each other questions and all sorts of things. It's a very stressful um, thing, but I do believe in the process. I think that there's something to be said for um, the accused to really have the opportunity to say, hey, this isn't what happened. Um, at the same time, supporting the um, victim to say, this is something that should have never happened and how can we help you get through it? It's an interesting balancing act. So I've really been doing title nine all of my career, just in different pieces. When I was the deputy as associate Dean, that's when I really began to hear a little bit more about faculty staff cases um, and cases that involve students and faculty. And so I gained some knowledge and skills around that. Wright State doesn't have a whole lot of Title IX complaints, and I'm not quite sure why. I can't imagine it's because sexual harassment is not occurring. Um, so one of my goals um, here at Wright State is just to get out doing things like this, making sure people know who I am, and that there's someone to talk to if there's something going on that shouldn't be. Well, that was uh, interesting you bring that up, and that was one of my questions uh, here, and then I'll let somebody else speak. Um, the sex-related crimes on campus have been very uh, non, it's not talked about. So, and one of my interesting, uh, the interesting notes we had here is that one of the reasons this might be is that students are afraid to speak out and report potentially. And I know that there's a lot of unfortunate victim shaming and blaming, and why didn't you come forward? And it sounds like you've kind of already answered that question, that you do want to be sure that students are not afraid to come out and report. Was that your experience before, that fear kind of holds people back? I think fear holds all people back. I know even as a professional, unfortunately, as um a woman, I have experienced sexism myself in the workplace. So both as a student and as an employee, speaking up means a whole lot that maybe I don't want to deal with. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to have to uh, look at my colleagues and wonder if they know that I reported our boss. Or maybe I am too afraid this person has sexually assaulted me. They may not listen to the university when they tell that person to leave me alone and they may come after me. I mean, there's a lot of fear. I think that there are ways to help the community get around that. And one of the things that I think helps is that prior to the Title IX regulations really tightening up a little bit, if a sexual assault was reported to someone on campus, they were required to tell the police everything. 
that really put a damper on reporting because folks were like, I want to tell someone and I want something done, but I don't want to go through the court system. So when yeah, you say I crimes, yeah, crime, go, becoming a witness on the stand and having your business out there for the world is is even more. It's a little much. Yeah. So now that you can report it and say, I don't want to have a police report, um, things have changed a little bit. And I hope that I am able to get out there and say, if you need support, if you don't want to have to sit next to that person in, you know, math class, or you want to be able to feel safer walking to your car, come talk to me and let's see what we can do. I'm hoping that helps. At UD, one of the things that they did to really change the culture was they started a program called the Green Dot Program. Um, it's a national program that really gets students managing sexual assault so that when they see something, they say something. And so they're not just reporting their own behavior, but they're walking up and interrupting behavior that is leading to possible sexual assault. It's a really good program, um, but it's extremely expensive. So trying to figure out how to help Wright State become a place that is more comfortable with coming forward and reporting um, likely means spending either a lot of money or coming up with something homegrown and organic that really helps people say, we, I am not going to tolerate this in my environment anymore. When I see someone who is has overindulged in alcohol and someone else that they just met escorting them out of a party, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to walk over, and I'm going to do something about it. Not necessarily fight, hopefully not, but to say, hey, what, what's going on here? And let me drive both of you home. And what do we need to do to step in? That kind of behavior helps. It also makes people feel like, hey, people here have my back and I can speak up when something does happen. Yes. And the perpetrators would also start to realize, hey, people are going to notice if I do this. Right. So it also adds accountability to the people that are doing these things. It does. And in particular, I think that um, it's actually, I think, easier to get students to report than it is faculty staff because their livelihoods are also at stake. So they have all of the same barriers, but also the fear that I'm going to lose my job. So the faculty and staff, I think I need to spend some time with them as well. Yeah, it's funny that you touched on that because that's something that I wanted to bring up as well. I've kind of experienced um, things in the professional in the professional realm um, like that as well in my, in my life. I was in the, the Army for a couple years, and when I was in, one of the biggest things that I noticed was – um, people that were having uh, mental health issues or struggling with um, things such as anxiety and depression and suicide, um, there was a, a really big stigma about not talking about it because they mm -hmm. were afraid that once that information got out, that they possibly wouldn't be able to, to get promoted um, or able to advance because their superior, they thought that their superiors would then you know, look down upon them or maybe they're not mentally strong enough in order to handle that next level of responsibility and things like that as well. So I do think it's really important that in the professional realm and in the professional fields um, that people do feel comfortable coming forward and speaking about things that are happening in their professional lives um, without being in fear that they're not going to be promoted or not going to be um, you know, ostracized by their, um, by their superiors. 
And truthfully, I appreciate you bringing that up because that is why institutions have a Title IX coordinator, so that there is someone who makes sure that people know you can speak up and there are protections so that you are not, um, there's no retaliation back toward you. I think that if there's anything I can do in this job, hopefully I'm able to get across that we have mechanisms to help prevent retaliation. In particular, we have no contact orders and we can institute those even before a finding of responsibility is made. We can simply say, you're not allowed to contact this person. And then if they do contact they go through the student conduct system for failure to you know, comply with a university order. So there's lots of backups for it. Um, and I think that if people felt like retaliation was off the table, they would feel more comfortable. Absolutely. I would agree with you. It's hard, though. It is hard to speak up and say this happened to me. There's a lot of self-doubt and a lot of self-blaming that unfortunately our culture has taught us. But in the end, um, no no one deserves to be treated as less than due to their um, sex or gender. And no one deserves to endure any sort of physical touch that hasn't been um, approved. So there's a lot of work to be done. I'm, I'm, you know, if y'all want to come volunteer and help me out, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well as, you know, what can we as students do to help limit the number of cases that come to your desk? And you kind of touched on it earlier. You know, if you're at a party and you see somebody who's, you know, clearly, um, you know, drunk and you, you see another person that, you know, is, is sober and they're trying to, you know, drive them, you know, somewhere possibly back to their house, being able to, um, to have the courage and step in there and be like, hey, you know, what's going on here, stuff like that. I've actually done that in my, um, in my life as well as more of a domestic violence issue, but mm -hmm. you know, it does take a little bit of courage to be the one to step up and say, Hey, I see what you're doing here. I'm not going to, you know, to allow it to continue. And domestic violence. I was just going to say domestic violence falls under title nine as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what you did in that scenario is exactly what I'm hoping people would step up and do. Yeah. For sure. And it, it, it does take a little bit of courage because you, you do doubt yourself, like, should I get involved? Should I not get involved? But you just have to be like, OK, you know, this is wrong and I'm not going to I'm not going to stand for it. And it was domestic violence um, when me and a couple of my buddies stepped in. Um, we saw a guy that was getting pretty rough with a woman and we put a stop to it immediately. Um, and it does make you feel good when you when you do step in. You know, you might be a little bit scared to to involve yourself in something that you know, that has nothing to do with you. But once you do stop it and you know that you, you know, potentially save that person um, from enduring some trauma, um, it does feel good. Nick, I think it doesn't hurt that you have a big booming voice that's meant for radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Claire. Deborah, if people see something happening like a sec uh, domestic violence situation or a sexual harassment situation, um, would you encourage them to go report that even though it did not happen to them? Or is there some other process that they need to take in order to get that taken care of? It is. Thank you. So absolutely, they can come report it to me. It limits what I can do about it, obviously. But it puts it on my radar such that I can try to find a way to reach out to the 
uh, victim and say, hey, do you need any help? Now, that's a difficult thing to do, particularly when it comes to domestic violence. You don't want to call someone and leave a message and run the risk of the other person getting the message. But mm -hmm. there are ways and mechanisms to at least attempt to reach out and say, I can help you if you let me. And so absolutely report it and then let me figure out what to do about it. I think that that's an excellent question. I really appreciate you asking it. Yeah. And also kind of on the same lines as that, if somebody anonymously reports, how do you go about helping that person with whatever they're dealing with? Yeah, we do accept anonymous reports. And one of the things I would tell folks when you file an anonymous report be descriptive at least on what happened. We had a lot of anonymous reports that say, I want to report that so-and-so is harassing the students in Art 202. I just made up a class. I don't even know if that exists. Um, okay, I, I don't know what that means. What are they doing that is harassment? So when you do an anonymous report, even though your name's not on it, you have to give the details or else there's very little I can do. I don't know which section of Art 202 that is. I don't know who. It, there's just not enough for me to do anything. It ends up getting filed away in no man's land. But if someone files an anonymous report and it's detailed about who and what and when and where and why, that gives me at least enough to go and do some inquiry to find out if I can learn more or if I can learn enough to really take some action. I think that um, people don't like to put some words down on paper, so to speak. Um, having sure, to describe yeah. it. Like harassment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Saying somebody harassed me is a lot easier than saying someone continually, you know, touches my back when they walk by me. Um, th there's just something that's easier to just label it harassment and move on. But I got to have that detail or I don't know what it is that you think is harassment. Because sometimes people think just meanness is harassment. And unfortunately, it's very rarely harassment. It's just someone who's not very nice. Yeah, I'm glad that you touched on that too, Deborah, because there is a very broad um, you know, definition to some people of harassment and what that means. Um, and that's something else that I dealt with in the military as well, is we would hear people um, you know, making these reports of harassment, but then you'd hear about it and you'd be like, oh, is that harassment? And, and for me as a man, um, there was, there was a, a, quite a bit of confusion there going into it because I would hear some things and I'm like, whoa, if, if that's harassment, you know, then I, I got to make sure I don't do that. And you'll hear other people say things and you're like, okay, that's definitely harassment. So there right. is very, there is definitely a broad you know, kind of view that some people can have. And they'll just, like you said, they'll just label everything as harassment. So I can imagine well, that, that you would need some sort of, you know, description as to what's going on to make sure that, you know, you know what to do. Well, that, and sometimes I need to know what kind of harassment. Is it based on sex and gender? Is it based on race? Is it based on ability and or disability? Like, I, I need to know what kind. Um, so I know what part of my job I'm engaging. I also think that it's important to share that Title IX has a very specific level of harassment that um, is has to be met for it to be a Title IX case. It has to be either sexual assault, quid pro quo, which I'll explain in a second if you're not familiar, and then lastly, it has to be severe, persistent, and objectively offensive. So that last one 
it's kind of hard to meet. If someone calls you an inappropriate name, a sexually charged inappropriate name, if they call you that one time, that's not mm -hmm. going to meet harassment. It's okay. not okay to do, but it's not going to meet the level of harassment that Title IX um, talks about. It might meet some other code of conduct over in the community standards office. Quid pro quo, um, for those anybody who's a pre-law student, they know that right off the top of their head, but that is, I will, I will give you this if you give me that, sort of a this for that kind of thing um, where there's power involved. So, you know, if a staff member were to say to a student worker, I'll let you have three days off with pay, but here's what you have to do for me in sexual favor to get that. That would be a quid pro quo case. Um, so Title IX is very specific, these three things. One of the things I'm currently working on is adapting and updating the current policy at Wright State to meet not only the new regulations, because there are new regulations that we're trying to manage, but also how do we incorporate behaviors that are not okay for our community, but don't rise to the level of Title IX. A great example of that is Title IX does not cover anything that does not happen on U.S. soil. So if you study abroad, oh, wow, I did not know that it, that's new. So that's one of the new regs. Um, it's it's baffling to some of us in higher education, but it's the truth. So that means you could study abroad with a fellow student. That fellow student could sexually harass you while you're in France or Spain or wherever you go. And um, Title IX compliance, my office, would have its hands tied. So one of the things I want to do has with it always the, been like that. No, that is brand spanking new. Okay. Um, Betsy DeVoe, who was uh, is the outgoing. Well, I guess she resigned, so she is the former um, Department of Education person. Uh, her crew um, they put together new regulations, as most administrations do, and one of them is it has to happen on U.S. soil. And truthfully, what she's doing in that is, and I say she, but it was a committee, the original Title IX law that's part of the Civil Rights Act says no person in the United States shall blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so I think that they said, wait a minute, why are we managing things that aren't happening in the United States? Um, it's a logical leap. It, I, it also goes on to say it can't happen in any university program or activity. So they kind of contradict each other. Obviously, if you're studying abroad through Wright State, yeah. that's a program or activity. But since it didn't happen on U.S. soil, it doesn't meet the criteria. Um, so if you are a great example of something that would meet the criteria is currently nothing off campus meets the criteria. It says it has to be part of a program or activity, unless that that thing that happens off campus is part of a program or activity. So if a sorority, for example, has a social at a local bar and something happens there, their social is a university sponsored and approved activity. So that would fall under Title IX. So Deborah, I'm sure that uh, a lot of victims might hear this and hesitate to come forward because of the restrictions, what help can you offer if your hands are tied in a situation? Well, that's the good news is I can offer accommodations and assistance to anyone for anything. 
It's the investigation and the adjudication part that is affected. So anyone who needs help, I can help them. I can help them, you know, look at their class schedules. I can help them um, when they need some, the faculty to know that they may or may not be as attentive as normal. I can do some, I'd call it, the students had a major life event email um, so that faculty know, hey, they're, they're not kidding. This person's in some sort of distress and I need to give them a break, so to speak, in terms of timetables. There's lots of stuff I can do to help. I just can't adjudicate it when it falls underneath those mm -hmm. those pieces. Uh -huh. and, and there's not that many, but being on U.S. soil and being on campus seems like a lot. So if there's a non-university party over in the apartments off campus and something happens there that would not fall under Title IX. Hey guys, if you want another great show to listen to, tune into WWSU and listen to Rock and Raider every week. I believe it's right before this podcast. Uh, this features Maxwell, another one of our writers at The Guardian that's usually on the podcast. And please turn, tune into WWSU 107.9 for all of your right states and other podcast news. Absolutely. Thank you, Claire, for that plug. Deborah, thank you so much for being here and talking with us, um, giving us some insight on what your position as Title IX coordinator and equity investigator um, involves, um, talking to us a little bit about some of the things that you, you know, did over your 20, 25 years at UD. Um, I, it was really great talking with you, having you on. I'm so glad that you decided to do this with us. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I hope I didn't cause more confusion. And if I did, call me and I will try to straighten it out. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you did an excellent job. Holly, thank you so much for being here as well. Claire, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We will be back next week with another episode, episode 18 for you guys. Make sure to check out our socials at WSU Guardian. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube all over the place. We have the right source of news for you guys. Um, and yeah, we will be back episode 18 next week. So thank you so much for being here and have a good night. Bye guys. Bye, Bye. guys.